Scripture reading comes from the book of Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. In those days, a decree went out to Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration where Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was one of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Good morning. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic. Glad that you could join us for Sunday service. Uh, today, as, as it was mentioned, it marks the first Sunday of four uh, Sundays leading into Christmas Day, and we call the season Advent. Uh, Advent means the coming or the arrival, and it's the season that we as a church do two things. One is look backwards, and one is to look forwards. We look backwards and remember together as a family of faith the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we simultaneously look forward uh, to the eventual returning of our Savior King, Jesus Christ. And so we can say that we are a people who live in between two advents. One advent was when Jesus came, and the, and the second one, the last one, is when he'll eventually return. And this advent season, we embark on a new sermon series entitled Carols. Carols. Uh, it's unusually in this season, more than any other season, that it seems like there's song and music in the air. Uh, you can almost hear it. You can almost smell the chestnuts roasting on an open fire, even though only a few of us have fireplaces. And we are bitterly reminded sometimes um, of Jack Frost nipping at our nose, but also our toes and our ears and every extremity that we have in the cross street winds of New York City. Uh, but what is the reason for the caroling, the singing, uh, the Christmas tunes that seem to hum through our streets and our hearts uh, this time of year? Because I do agree, it is the most wonderful time of the year, but why? 
for the next four weeks, we'll be taking a look at four of the most popular carols to think through the reason and the meaning of Christmas. And today, uh, I have the uh, pleasure and uh, the honor of kicking us off at looking at one of uh, an old-time favorite, which is Hark the Herald Angel Sings. And uh, in preparing the sermon for our passage today, or the sermon today, uh, the simple reason we sing this carol, and I think all the carols that we know, is because this passage remembers that at the birth of Christ, uh, there was a carol that was sung. And this is that carol uh, that we sing of today. This carol in our passage uh, today points us to, I think, four things, and we'll look over that together today. And I'll answer the questions, who's the king, Uh, what's his work, how did he accomplish it, and what does it mean for us today in this season of Advent? Who's the king, what's his work, how did he accomplish that work, and what does it mean for us today in this Advent season? Let's first answer that question, who is this king? Uh, At the beginning of our passage today, we're told that there is an announcement of a king, but actually not only one king, But there are actually two kings here in our passage. Uh, We're told that uh, in those days the decree went out from Caesar Augustus, who was the king of the world, and he makes an announcement, he makes a decree. And then later on in that same passage, we're told that there's an announcement of the birth of a king. There are these two kings. And every commentator notices that uh, these two kings in juxtaposition um, are starkly different from each other. Uh, One king is high and lifted up, the other is low and simple. Uh, One calls the world up to himself, Um, and if you'll notice the language here, it's highly inflated language because Caesar Augustus uh, wished that all of the world should be registered. Now granted, Caesar Augustus was a very successful uh, king of the Roman Empire. He was the first emperor of the Roman Empire. And we, we, we estimate, I think experts estimate, that under his reign, uh, there were about 70 million people, which accounted for a third of the population. And so, yes, he was a successful king, but to say that he wanted all the world to be registered uh, is highly inflated. Uh, one calls the world up to himself, and of course, uh, we think that maybe this was for the purpose of taxation, so that people could be registered in his kingdoms for the purpose of taxation. Uh, One calls the world up to himself, but the other comes down to the world himself. And also something that the commentators notice is that the language referring to Jesus, the king, um, is very simple and extraordinarily unimpressive. Uh, We're told that he was born, that he's wrapped in swaddling cloths, He was laid in a manger uh, because there was no place for them in the inn. One is authoritarian and demanding, and the other is humble and generous. And if there is a king that we're going to follow this season, we want this king to be humble and generous. And, uh, well, why humility? Uh, Of course, we know uh, to a certain degree just kind of apparently Uh, the value of humility, but uh, think on this interplay of humility and generosity. I've met plenty of generous people who weren't humble, but rarely have I met someone who is humble who wasn't also generous. 
Uh, and this is exactly the characteristic we want in a king if we're going to follow a king. We want someone who's humble because humbleness or humility has everything to do with generosity. And we could say in the case of our Lord Jesus Christ, the king, uh, that humility is the means of his generous self-giving. Uh, I have this mentor in my life and he was actually the former senior pastor of the former church that I used to serve. His name is Reverend Han. And uh, he is uh, really an extraordinary man, uh, really larger than life, even though actually he was a very um, short-statured um, individual. Uh, he always had a smile from ear to ear. And he was always one of those people uh, that you wanted to be around because when you were around him, uh, there was something to be gained from his insight or his encouragement or his joking or his stories. Uh, but make no mistake about it, uh, vocationally speaking, uh, he was very successful. He went from being a former uh, professor at a seminary to now senior pastor three times over, meaning that he senior pastored three churches over the course of, I think, something like 30 years of vocational ministering. Uh, he also, uh, from what he would tell us when he got back from his trips, uh, he would engage in some of the most dangerous and high-level missions um, really in the world. I mean, he would uh, meet up with dignitaries and officials and even presidents of nations that are hostile to Christianity. And he would only tell us about it um, only to the pastoral staff because he wanted to kind of contain the information. And, and maybe I just blew his spot when I said that, but um, that was kind of the level that he was on. But every Tuesday, every Tuesday of the week, he would uh, call the entire pastoral staff into the gym to play ball with us. Uh, and that's something that I fondly remember about this man. This, this man of incredible intellect and of uh, stature and of just such success in vocational ministry over 30 years. I mean, he would shake the hand of presidents most days of the week, and then on Tuesdays, he would pat me on the back and say, way to go, nice shot, Brian, that's the way to do it, as he played ball with us. Uh, he was a 60-year-old guy, uh, joking around with people half his age, and I couldn't tell you how special I felt because this man of such stature, would really humble himself and lower himself and spend time with me, pat me on the back and regard me as uh, one of his guys. Uh, well, similarly, Jesus gives himself to us by lowering himself, unafraid to mingle with the lowly by becoming low himself. And make no mistake about it, his weakness was not an inherent weakness, but it was an assumed weakness, meaning that he assumed weakness, put on weakness and humiliation by his own volition. But why? Well, it was so that he could give to us, though he was God, the eternal word, he was made flesh so that he could relate to us face to face. And this is the paradox that we see in our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, of loftiness and of humility 
in one. And this is the characteristic of every good leader, I think, uh, if not in a king. And so um, I hope you've had good experiences with your bosses or your supervisors or your VPs, but uh, more stories than not that I hear uh, from the city is that uh, we have supervisors and VPs and bosses that drive us up the wall. Um, and maybe it's because they sit high, perched up in their corner offices on the higher floor with a better view. Uh, but our King, our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, holds this paradox of being God, fully God, but becoming fully man also. Uh, Augustine writes about this in For the Feast of the Nativity, and you'll find that quote in your bulletin on the first page, if you'll look with me. Augustine says this about this paradox. He so loved us that for our sake he was made man in time, although through him all times were made. He was made man who made man. He was created of a mother whom he created. He was carried by hands that he formed. He cried in the manger in wordless infancy. He the word without whom all human eloquence is mute. Reminds me of that song that the Pentatonics covered called Mary, Did You Know? It's the best rendition out there. I think this might be the second time I'm saying this at the pulp, but it's how much I want to recommend their cover. Um, but that whole song is about this paradox exactly. Uh, Mary, did you know um, that uh, the, the one that you delivered will soon deliver you? Just gives me chills every time I hear that verse because it talks about this paradox of God's simultaneous loftiness, but also his simultaneous humility. And if there is a king of creation, this is the king that we want and need. Well, let's talk about his work. And so he is a humble and generous king, um, and it's the way that he'll do his work in humility and in generosity. But what is that work? Well, we're told by the angels what that work is. If you'll look with me um, in the passage, we're told that the angels said to them, these shepherds that were out in the field, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was the angel, with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And if I could focus in on one aspect of this work that the king does, it's to bring us peace. It's what the chorus of that uh, carol says. And on, the, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So what is the work that the king has come to do? Uh, it's to bring us peace. It's to bring peace on earth with those whom he is pleased with. But you know, there's a problem here, and the problem is this. Uh, there is no peace, and um, in such a bleak world um, of fighting and war, uh, it almost seems like peace is an impossibility because, and I think the reason is, everyone has their own definition of peace. 
And so everyone's really fighting for their own peace. And so in a world like that, in a system like that, how could we actually have the kind of worldwide, in the streets kind of peace that we all want? And Matt Rogers kinds of, um, he kind of summarizes this idea really well, and you'll find that quote in your bulletin as well. He writes this, when an internal sense of peace becomes the ultimate rationale for decision-making, no, no one can question you. It's the ultimate mic drop, akin to saying God told you to do something. And who's going to say God didn't or that your sense of peace is wrong? Well, unfortunately, our internal compass is fundamentally broken due to the fall. Apart from Christ, our feelings are wildly deceptive. Our depraved natures can align, uh, can, can align feelings of peace with actions that betray God's good design. Now, this might not be a big deal in morally neutral decisions like selecting a college or our next entrepreneurial venture, but it's a massive issue when it bleeds over to choices in other areas of life, which it almost always does. What about when a sense of peace serves as the, as the basis for choosing a church? Even if the church preaches an impoverished gospel or lacks godly leadership. Or when we justify a decision to end a contentious marriage because we simply feel peace when we're apart. Or when we assume a homosexual relationship must be God's design because we have peace. It sounds like a virtuous practice. After all, God, doesn't God want us to experience peace? Isn't internal clarity a sign of his blessing? Would he really want us to make a decision that didn't yield immediate peace? Surely not. But this is the problem of peace, you see. Because if all we ever did was say, well, I'm at peace with it, and so the peace that's right for me is the peace that's right for me, well, the problem is that everyone is going to have their own subjective definition of peace, and so there can't actually be this universal peace because everyone's going to be fighting for their own definition of peace, which means we're a long ways, long ways from universal peace. But actually, the peace that the Bible talks about again and again and again Biblical peace, again and again, as we're told in the scriptures, is always actually in the context of a relationship. It's relational peace that the Bible talks about. True peace is when someone is pleased with you, and that's what the carol of the angels is all about. Uh, we're told that on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Uh, in other words, when you're loved and someone is pleased with you, uh, and maybe even when you're most unlovable, that's when you can have the most peace. Uh, my wife, I remember the first time my wife told me, I love you, Brian. It was a very special moment. I, I actually don't remember the date. Uh, maybe if you ask her, she'll remember because she remembers these things. They're all horrible at remembering that kind of stuff. But I do remember that she said it, and I remember the feeling the first time she said it, and it was like nothing else mattered. Just walking on clouds, 
smile on my face. There was this like inner peace that I had because for so long I had been working up and working so that she could say that to me, right? Trying to impress her with flowers, taking out, taking her out to fancy dinners, long walks, you know, in Boston, that's where our dating relationship was. And um, when she said it, there was this like inner peace that took over. Uh, has anyone told you, I love you? And I bet when they did, uh, it changed your life. But do you remember um, maybe a time when someone said, not I love you, but I hate you? Uh, well, hopefully not, but those words um, are vicious. And they're vicious because it destroys. Uh, one word, I love you, can give you peace and give you life. Um, but the other word, I hate you, can uh, ruin you. It could uh, uh, bring you utter devastation um, to the innermost. Uh, and that's why Jessica Simpson in 19, or 2003 sang that song, uh, Now That I'm With You. Because if you remember what she sang about, she sang about, I can let my hair down. I can say anything crazy because I know you'll catch me right before I hit the ground. Because nothing, nothing but a t-shirt on. I never felt so beautiful, baby, <laughs> as I do now, now that I'm with you. You know how you can have peace? Is when you're found pleasing before God Almighty. When, when God looks at you and says, I am pleased with you. I adore you. I find nothing wrong with you. That's when we can have the most peace. So how can we, found, how can we be found pleasing in God's sight then? Well, the short answer is we can't. And that's why we don't have peace. We aren't found pleasing before God. Because remember the Kobayashi Maru from Star Trek? That unbeatable exam, uh, the, the exam with no-win scenarios, no one can pass it. Or if you remember, uh, a professor from college uh, who always, year to year, had that impossible exam that the seniors and juniors always talked about and where the, the top raw score was like 32, and so the curve was like 70-point um, 70, 70 swing or something like that. Uh, everyone failed that exam, and likewise for us, when we stand before God, we're going to fail this test every time. It's like, it's like that with us spiritually speaking. We can't come close to being pleasing to God. No one, no one is found pleasing before God no one is righteous before God, in other words. Um, and really, the only way that we could pass the exam, or the only one who could pass the exam, is the professor himself who wrote the exam. Uh, but herein lies the good news for us in the gospel of Christ. That similarly, the one who could only please God was God himself, and that's exactly the point. When God the second person of the Trinity, in all his loftiness and exalted place in heaven for all of eternity, 
came down and became fully flesh, fully man, so that he could take the exam for us, so that in Christ we could be found pleasing. And you remember his entire life. I mean, he passed his exam every day of his life. And you remember at his baptism, uh, we're told the voice from heaven said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And he lives the perfect life we should have but couldn't and dies the death we should have received uh, but in our stead. And then he credits his merits of righteousness to us. And so when God sees us now in Christ, what he sees is the perfect righteousness of Christ. And it's in that perfect righteousness that we stand now. And so that when God sees us, he can be totally pleased with us. He can tell us the words now because of what Christ has done for us, I love you. He absolutely adores us, but in the work of Christ. Um, also, that we can have peace, be found pleasing in God's sight. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So there it is. It's the gospel of Christ, and it's what we have faith in. It's the power of salvation to save us. It's because of the work of Christ. Now, I said the third point of the sermon is how does he accomplish his work, but I already said that. Um, And really, if we are faithful to the moment of this passage, when the angels are singing, uh, the how question of how he accomplished this work, of course, it looks forward to the cross, but if we're faithful to the moment of the passage, it tells us that it is and will be accomplished. It, It signals that it's been accomplished already. And so if you remember uh, the song, Hark the, Hang- uh, Hark the Herald Angels, I have to like sing it to remember the title. Uh, it says, uh, joyful all ye nations, join the triumph of the sky with angelic hosts proclaim Christ is born in Bethlehem, right? But uh, have you ever stopped at that line that said, joyful all ye nations, join the triumph of the sky? And we just sort of kind of um, intuitively kind of get what that line is. But this line has everything to do with triumph. Uh, If we look in our passage, we're told that um, uh, verse 13, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Uh, but actually the the word-for-word translation in the Greek, or another word for that word host, is army. So it could be translated a multitude of the heavenly army uh, of God was saying. And uh, that's not bad. That's really helpful because this is not a scene of fat babies with wings, with arrows, singing songs. But this is actually a a battle scene. It's a battle scene where all of the heavenly armies are assembled. But notice that this heavenly army isn't lifting up swords, but they're lifting up song. They're lifting up a carol, if you will, the first carol ever sung on Christmas Day. And think with me now, when did armies sing? Did they sing before the battle? during the battle, or after the battle. 
They didn't sing before the battle, but before the battle, there were trumpets and drums. During the battle, there wasn't singing because there was actual fighting. There was only singing uh, by the armies if there, if and only if there was something to sing about. If, in other words, there was a victory of a battle to sing about. And this is the point of this carol, that the heavenly army is singing as if a battle has already been won. And of course, this is true in a sense, because the mere arrival of the true king signals the beginning of a victorious end. And so if you'll think with me, uh, Normandy, uh, when the Allied forces uh, stormed the beaches of Normandy and broke the back of that beachfront, it was the decisive battle that would bend the trajectory of the entire war. It was this decisive battle that won the war. Everyone would agree with that. And in the same way, when the angels are singing, when the armies are assembled and they're singing a carol, what they're saying is that the true king has arrived, that the king has come to secure our peace and his victory is secured. Our eternal peace then has been secured and won by the mere arrival of the true king. It's over before it really began. And this speaks to the power of our God, uh, the generosity of our God towards us. And so church, uh, how does it feel in this season to remember that we're on the winning side? If you believe this, if you know this, this is going to give you great peace because we have every confidence in the Prince of Peace who secured our peace. I want to end with what this means for us in this Christmas season, what, what it could mean for us. And this is where we need to pray for every heart that comes to the doors of Exilic that we would have this kind of peace and the security of that peace in this season. And it's this confidence in a battle already won for us. And I just want to end with this story. Uh, this past week, I was in Los Angeles uh, spending time with my in-laws. And we do this every year. We go to Thanksgiving. They get Thanksgiving. My parents get Christmas and New Year's because uh, they live in Jersey. Um, but uh, we had a chance to celebrate with... Um, my extended family, um, the 92nd birthday of Jeannie's grandmother. And um, this woman is incredible. Um, All she does is read the scriptures and pray all day. And, um, but you know, I I found something, um, I found something interesting in my conversations with her. She kept talking about her death. I know it's a little bit of a downer at the end of this sermon, but she kept talking about her death, like she was waiting for Christ to take her home. And of course, I I should have been happier about that because I'm a preacher. I I know what that means, right? Because it it means heaven. It means eternal life. I I get that. But uh, this was her birthday, and so I thought it'd be a little bit more celebratory uh, talking about her life and her grandchildren and the work that she's done. But she, she just kept referring to her death and um, at first, I wanted to avoid the topic altogether, and so I, I, I'd always try and be like, yes, but your life has been um, so fruitful and so amazing, uh, because I, you know, I thought it was impolite to talk about someone's death with that person. 
but one, and, and, and later on, we had a nice dinner and conversation over coffee and, um, and tea. And um, at the end of the night, as we were wrapping up, uh, one of uh, Jeannie's aunts uh, led us in a prayer for Grandma. And um, even in the prayer, the aunt kept talking about, um, oh, when she leaves us and this and that. And I meant, man, this is like rude. This is like out of place. Uh, but as she was praying that prayer about grandma's death, I, I was sitting next to grandma and I was holding her hand actually throughout the prayer. And I overheard something that she said under her breath during the prayer. And she said this, uh, yes, Lord, I believe you will. the strength and confidence of faith she had in her Savior. Even uh, knowing her age and, and even, even as she knew that the clarity of her wit and even the clarity of maybe her profession of faith was fading, she still had every confidence in a battle already won. She, she had more faith in her Savior than in her own profession of faith in that Savior. You know what that is? That's faith. When you have faith in the one who can save you more than in your own faith in that Savior, that's faith. That is confidence in a battle already won. And so here and now, I, I, I want to be like grandma to talk about my death so confidently because for us, it's not morbid. It, for us, it's not a downer to talk about our death because we know that the battle is already won. And in this season for us, exilic, uh, it can become a season of renewing our faith in the one who has secured our peace the Prince of Peace. That is the one who made us lovable and pleasing in the sight of our God. That is the meaning of Christmas. Let's pray. Father, you're greater than maybe the eloquence of my words just now. You're greater than even the profession of our faith. Uh, we remember in this passage that it's not really the strength of our faith, but it's the object of our faith, you, your son, and the work that you've done for us that gives us great confidence of peace in a battle already won. So help us to live according to that and have a renewed sense of that in this Advent season. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.